0: This is the Tea on International Arbitration with Gaela Garing flores and Nicole Silver. Nicole is an attorney and investment manager with third-party funder Validity Finance, and I am an international arbitration partner at Allen & Overy. Both of us serve as committee chairs of the DC Bar International Law Community. We bring you now what just may be the mother of all Tea episodes,
1: Tea with Meg Kinnear. Today, we have the great honor and privilege to share some tea with Meg Kinnear, who since 2009 has been vice president of the World Bank Group and secretary general of the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, what folks in arbitration circles call ICSID. Before joining ICSID, Meg served as the senior general counsel and director general of the Trade Law Bureau of Canada, during which time she was named chair of the negotiating group on dispute settlement the Free Trade of the Americas Agreement. Prior to her tenure at Canada's Trade Bureau, Ms. Kinnear was Executive Assistant to the Deputy Minister of Justice of Canada. And before this, Meg earned her legal practitioner chops as counsel at the Civil Litigation Section of the Canadian Department of Justice.
0: So you might understand now why Nicole and I are a bit starstruck interviewing Meg. She has been at the helm of the world's premier investment arbitration institution for a significant chunk of our arbitration careers. Meg
1: is, in a word, an icon. So we're thrilled to be able to strike up a conversation with you, Meg, and we thought we would start by diving into your experience at ICSID. You have served as the Secretary General of ICSID for roughly 13 years, the same number of years, of ICSID's first Secretary General, Alan Brogis. And I imagine that during this time, ICSID and international arbitration itself have changed quite a bit. So I wonder if you can tell us what one or some of the most pivotal transitions have been and if there is something that has perhaps surprisingly been a constant during your tenure and maybe also Just to make this question even longer, what would you say you are most proud of so far during your tenure as Secretary General? And or is there anything that stands out in your mind as
2: being an example of one of your greatest achievements? Thank you. I'm really delighted to join you on the tee. This is a privilege for me as well. When you talk about what I'm most proud of, to be honest, I feel like I'm most proud of that I'm actually still standing in here in my third term working my way through. And the reason I say that is when I started in 2009, the job of secretary general had always been a job that was done by the World Bank's legal counsel. So it was one person wearing two hats. And in 2008, the president of the bank got to the stage where he said, both the secretary general job and the legal counsel job have enough responsibilities, enough challenges, that the secretary general job deserves to be a standalone job with one person dedicated to that. So I was lucky to be the first full-time dedicated secretary general, but it meant in many ways that I had to define or redefine the job. And uh, it was both an opportunity and a challenge. And I can certainly say, and I can say that now because I can look back 13 years, it was really a very tough transition. I was in a brand new organization, not just ICSID, but the World Bank with a brand new job. I had a number of issues to deal with, and I had a staff that was brand new to me. So all of those are normal challenges when you take on a new job. But then when I think about it as well, and you'll understand this, which is the investor state dispute settlement environment was also very difficult at the time. And there were a lot of challenges and questions about investor state, investment agreements. Was this regime even going to continue? And I remember preparing for the job interview for Secretary General, reading a number of articles, including one, I can still see the title, which was Ixit at a Crossroads. So it was a difficult time to jump in. I know Ixit as an organization had just gotten through dealing with A whole swath of cases. For example, there were all the Argentina cases, which got a fair amount of public notoriety. There were a number of NAFTA cases starting to come up. There was media reporting challenging the whole discipline, issues about transparency, issues about whether arbitrators could appropriately do public matters that were looking at government conduct. And I think in some ways we were almost in an anti globalization era. I mean, I think of in the WTO context, we just come out of Seattle and all of that. So the whole milieu writ large was one that was tough, quite frankly. So walking into a new job in that environment was a challenge. And that's why I say I'm proud that I, I am still going. But in particular, I feel that we took on every challenge in front of us. And I feel that over time, we've made huge inroads. So I don't know that there's any one particular thing, but I feel that there's been just such progress when I look at it. Next step, next step, next step. It's been all very, very useful. And as of today, I have no doubt that we are the leader in the field, not just in terms of case numbers, et cetera, but also intellectually, and especially with our new rules. I feel like we've really made those kind of contributions. So I'm incredibly proud of this organization and the staff that have worked so amazingly throughout this time to get where we got to. But it was all one step at a time. I remember one of the first things I did when I got to Ixit was obviously meet everybody. And we were in a funny part of the World Bank. And I remember opening cabinets and literally files would just fall out of the cabinets because people <laughs> had literally been running so fast. It was just throw a file in a banker box and let's keep moving because we've got 20 more cases we've got to do. So we literally did start with little things which matter, but filing systems. And then we had to address a huge understaffing problem. We at one point got a new headquarters with, for the first time in ICSID history, dedicated hearing rooms. And that was major for us. And for those of you who've been to ICSID now, We have the most amazing hearing rooms and the most amazing facilities, but that was the product of day after day work by my staff, et cetera. We got to our new rules, which came into effect in July of this year. And over all of that time, my membership has risen in my time from 143 to 158 states. So that's roughly in one new state per year, which I think is terrific. The caseloads have gradually gone up. And just to add one more challenge, we had the pandemic come along where we had to pivot from what was mostly in-person hearings to fully remote hearings. And we were literally, if you count things like first sessions, et cetera, we were literally doing 250, 300 remote hearings a year during the pandemic. So all of that, I think, is is really something. And I look back at it together and I think, wow, we've done some good things over at XGB. In terms of constants, I think that's also an interesting thing. I look at two things. The first one was I have a bit more of a long-term perspective now on the fact that cases go up, cases go down. Obviously, we track our cases, but my colleagues will be able to tell you that when I first got to Ixid, if we ended a year, two cases less than the year before, I was just absolutely I mean, close to tears, I was like, oh no, what have we done wrong? Oh, is this the beginning of the end? So I'm happy to tell you, I take this much more in stride now. And I actually try to learn not to read too much of the numbers too closely, just because you can go up and down with those numbers. But I think my colleagues found it a little funny, but I went up and down every time those numbers did. The second constant, which is an interesting one, is budget. Budget is Always going to be tough in an organization that has so many important roles and so many pressing, literally, you know, life and death type demands. So that is really very difficult. And I can say that since 2017, IXIT has basically been self-sustaining. And that is a huge thing, but it's something we have to always be thinking about. And those are numbers we have to look at every single day to make sure we're still on track. And then the last thing that's a constant that maybe sounds a bit funny, but it is very much a constant that first was a surprise to me, but now it is a constant in my life. One of the things I realized was that because Ixit is so different in terms of its mandate from the rest of the World Bank, that we had to spend a lot of time, and we still do every day, explaining to other people at the World Bank why we matter, what we do and why it fits with the whole organization. And I can tell you that I came to the bank thinking Ixit is the center of the universe, of course. But in fact, uh, I had to realize that for many people, I got the question, what is Ixit? And this is people who have worked at the World Bank for years. So that's that's a constant. I understand where it comes from. So we keep telling them who we are, why we matter. And it comes with the job. But I, I have to say, I still find that kind of unique. So... Those are my constants.
0: (laughs) That's hilarious, Meg. Especially the the fact that you keep having to describe over and over what Ixit is and and its importance. I think pretty much anybody who works in investment arbitration (laughs) has to field the same question on a very constant basis. It's it's an interesting thing. I just had a slight aside. You referred to the kind of tumultuous period of, you know, was this regime going to continue, Ixit at a crossroads? You know, I definitely remember that time well, there's still a lot of talk about maybe a multilateral investment court, which might pose its own existential questions for ICSID. But did you ever take Elizabeth Warren aside during that time and just say, hey, let me explain to you what ICSID is and what we do and what we don't do?
2: I never did that, but I do probably remember muttering under my breath, who the heck is advising this lady, (laughs) to be honest, not respectful there. But yeah, that was one of those classic examples (laughs) where the media was setting a tone and you just said, have you ever even sat in a hearing? Do you understand the basics? And that's actually one of the big themes about this whole backlash or whatever someone wants to call it. A lot of it is based on misinformation or lack of information. And sometimes I I talk about investor state urban legends, and there are, I mean, even basic ones like, oh, states always lose. No, take a look at the numbers. Year in, year out, they're consistent. So, you know, all these things that reinforce those sort of urban legends, they are frustrating. But again, you have no choice, but you just keep coming back with, here's the facts. Take a look at what does happen. Come and look at one of our hearings. Come and see what's really happening and happy to talk. So we keep doing that. Although I have to say, I feel in the last few years, I mean, obviously there are still those who don't believe in the system or who doubt the system, but I feel there's been a bit of a a change, close to a sea change. It is much more accepted now. I rarely hear people go, get rid of investor state altogether, get rid of all your treaties, You know, denounce all of your treaties. That's not where we hear the dialogue now. And I think it's a healthy thing. What we hear more is, yes, there are some things that need to be improved, and I'm hoping in our amendments we did a lot of that, but that this is a good system, this matters, but you have to work with the system. You have to do, you know, as a government, you have to look preemptively, am I passing legislation that is sure to get investor state litigation going? How do I deal with my government goals consistent with my treaties? So I actually do feel the winds have changed and are going in what to me are the right direction, which is nice.
0: Yeah. And, and, and not to, not to diss Elizabeth Warren. I absolutely love her, but that was, you know, I'd love to receive one of her surprise calls, but that was a part of her, of her campaign that clearly I disagreed with. Going back a little bit more for you down memory lane. I wanted to get into a bit more of your professional origin story. So let's go back in time, back to your days in law school. And I imagine that when you were in law school, you may have had a particular idea of where your legal career might take you. And it probably did not include being the seventh secretary general of IXIT. If you could reach back in time and write a letter to yourself in law school, about what is to come, what do you think you would tell your younger self? And are there things that you would tell her to make sure to avoid or something that she should make sure to do?
2: Yeah, you're quite right. When I was in law school, there was no such thing as investment arbitration or any of those kind of courses. International law was seen as a bit of an amorphous sort of fluffy course. And not everybody took international law. So it really was a very different era in time. And my vision for my career was that I was going to be a litigator and that I would do that my entire career and maybe, if lucky, end up as a a judge in a domestic court. So sort of maybe not a highly imaginative career goal, but that was very much what I wanted to do and what I expected to do and I was gearing to. And the advice that I would give younger me now and that I often give when i'm talking to to younger groups of people who who sort of say you know as a mentor what do you say is basically i would tell myself to be bolder to take more chances and to try new things I think very maybe it's my personality type but i very much would you know okay i'm going to do this case so i'm going to dig into it 100% and just keep on going and keep on going and one of the things i learned over time almost coincidentally was every time I took a step and did a different job, then I learned new skills and the world opened up in a new way and different things. And then a different job, and I realized everything I'd done before actually helped doing this new job better. But I can tell you, in fact, the first, when I first moved from litigation and that what I thought was my lifelong career path, I accepted an offer to work with the Deputy Minister of Justice. And I literally thought, oh my God, what have you done? I have to phone and tell them I can't take it because I'm just going to be a litigator forever and ever. So that's why, to me, be bolder, take a chance, and don't be scared. Nothing is irreversible. If things go as badly as they possibly could, you pick yourself up and you go again. And having the sort of confidence to tell yourself that's okay, you can do it, that's always what I say to mentees who ask that kind of a question. Meg,
1: that's great advice. Thank you so much. Having just gone through a bit of a career change myself, I, I really appreciate it and agree with all that you just said. But I'd like to switch gears and discuss you know, what you've alluded to many times, and that is, of course, the new ICSID rules. And in particular, I wanted to talk about a few of the rules that are aimed at efficiency and transparency and dear to my own heart, disclosure of third-party funding could you just walk us through maybe the impetus behind these changes and also what you hope they may achieve
2: in practice? Yeah, there were a number of threads that all came together. First of all, we had started doing a lot of things to try and address what what you may call irritants. You know, counsel would call and say, why is this case taking so long? Or why can't you do this or that? And so we'd adopted a number of internal practices to try and address these things. And over time, we start to think a lot of this could be incorporated into rules, and we can take a a much more sort of holistic approach, especially to the time and cost issue in the rules. So that was one piece. The second piece, of course, is that in the outside world, this whole discussion about reform and what should happen to the discipline of investor state, that was still ongoing. And there were a number of areas where you could address it in a set of procedural rules like ICSID and i think you know third party funding is a great example of that so i think that was one of the one of the threads that led us to do this and then frankly the rules had last been amended in 2006 so it was by the time we started this process 10 years and there were changes there were technical changes there were practice changes and things were being discussed and so it seemed like a good time so we launched that rule amendment process at the annual meetings in 2006, and started out just saying to people, what do you think we should address? What do you think needs addressing? And we got a lot of suggestions and a lot of comments and that in and of itself made the scope even broader than I think I had first expected it to be. And then went through this in a huge process. We did six working papers, hundreds of presentations. We had three week-long In person consultations with all of our member states. So we did this and it lasted five and a half years, which is, albeit a long time, but I'm quite convinced now that that was five and a half years well spent because it led us to what I think are a series of well drafted rules, but also rules that garnered consensus. So even though we only really need to get 50% or two thirds of the membership to sign on we got 85% consensus and nobody voting not to have the rules. So that I think is a really good sign and is going to help you as you start working with them going forward. So that was basically the process and um how we got launched onto that point.
1: Could you maybe explain a little bit about the rules behind third party funding? You know, are they procedural, what are they aimed to achieve and are there limits? to what should or should not be disclosed.
2: Absolutely. The third party, as you know, was one of those topics that increasingly was being discussed by academics, by practitioners, and it was a big issue. And obviously it was something that was on the radar screen of our member state governments. So it was clear there needed to be a consideration of third party funding and likely that it would end up in a rule on third party funding. And Interestingly, and this was probably one of the last rules that we were able to finally agree on word by word, because as we looked at the topic and as we talked to people, the views were all over the map. And you'll you'll probably not be surprised, Nicole, because you work in this world, but we had everything from member states who wanted to completely outlaw third party funding and not allow it in the investor state world, all the way up to those who felt it was a huge advantage that it really did help in access to justice and every position in between. The other thing is, I think a lot of people still didn't really understand even what it was. And for those who understood what it was, you can imagine a number of different circumstances and say, is it third party funding or not? You know, if someone assigns receivables, is that third party funding? I mean, it really is. In many ways a difficult concept to just define in a set of rules. As we went through the discussion, I think what became clear was we said this is not going to be a rule that outlaws or endorses third-party funding. That's not what it's going to do because that's something that exists in the outside world and it's not our role in a set of procedural rules to make that kind of a determination. So what is the reason or rationale to have a third-party funding rule? And the only one, quite frankly, is the conflict of interest aspect, i.e., is there a conflict of interest between your arbitrator and your third-party funder? And certainly at the time we were doing this, there had been one or two situations where this had been raised. I think it rarely, if ever, happens now because there's a lot more sensitization to the issue. But the idea was that the third-party funding rule should give you the information you know at the beginning of the case so that you can say there is or there is not a conflict. So one of the things that I say very clearly, and I think it's important to recognize is this is a conflict of interest rule. This is not a disclosure or discovery rule. There are other tools for discovery and disclosure, and this is not one of them. So that is the basis of the rule, and hence why it's relatively simple and says you essentially have to say at the beginning of the case or as soon as you get funding that you do have funding and identify who is the name of your funder. And you do not need in particular to give the funding agreement to the other side. That, I think, gets into all sorts of confidential information, and you keep going back to the purpose. You don't need that to decide is there a conflict or not. And so the terms of the funding, you don't need that. All you need is the info to say, is there a conflict? And that's why I think it's a relatively simple rule. You're quite right to say that uh, Article 14.4, the last of the sub-rules, says that a party may ask for more information if necessary. And it is tied to the necessity test for putting in more evidence in a case. So it's meant to be bounded. It has to be relevant to whatever you're doing there, which is clearing conflict of interest. So that was included because a number of delegates felt it was very important. And it's true, a million different situations can come up that you don't think of. But I would be very surprised if there were those kind of follow-up, give more information rules after you have fully said you have funding and who is the funder. And I would expect that tribunals are going to interpret this rule exactly in that manner. This is a conflict of interest rule. So if you have what you need to ascertain conflict of interest, the rule has done what it's supposed to. So this is what I'm expecting. And I think increasingly in investor state, people are quite aware that there is third party funding. And I've seen a number of places where parties right up front, I have third party, even without a rule requiring them to do it because they want the case to go through smoothly and they want at the end of the day not to have anyone bringing things up that might be addressed in terms of annulment or any other post award remedy. So I think it's become much more normalized and much less scary to people in many ways. But that was the thinking around the third and the discussion around our third party funding rule.
1: Thanks, I really appreciate that very thorough answer.
0: I imagine that Nicole could talk with you for a very, very long time about third party funding. But um, with your leave, I will ask something that I've been really curious about. And, you know, speaking of efficiencies, there's been more than a bit of discussion about new arbitration rule 31 regarding the mandatory case management conference. The case management conference is a new beast to investment arbitration practitioners and arbitrators alike. From what I understand, it is not supposed to be melded with the first session. No, it's a separate thing altogether. But the rules are a little, you know, and maybe not surprisingly, they're not super precise. They don't tie the parties or the tribunal down to any procedure in particular, So, you know, it's understandable. Ixit is encouraging parties to make most efficient use of this time, of their time. Okay, but that said, and also in the name of transparency, Meg, (laughs) if you could wave a magic wand and make the parties and the tribunal do at least one thing at the case management conference, what would that one thing be?
2: Well, first, you're absolutely right. It leaves a huge amount of room for innovation because I think there is a lot that we can do here. And I've talked to a number of arbitrators who have done different things in individual cases that have worked really well. For example, they've been able to get the parties to put together an agreed set of facts that they work from, or they do decision trees that help parties know where you're going. So I think there's a lot of room for innovation here. And one of the things we'd like to start working on is just, I don't know, some conferences or some discussions about what are the ideas, just brainstorming, because a lot of people have a lot of really good ideas, and the rule is written broadly enough to accommodate that. For me, if there was just one thing, what I think is hugely important and makes a big difference is for the tribunal to actually sit down with the parties and say, we are here and we need to get to you know, the decision-making in the case, and we can do it this way. And you should know that as we do this, we understand this part of the argument, but here's what we're having trouble struggling with, focus on that. And if we could get tribunals, you know, not in a formal way per se, but just to say to parties, here's what we need you to focus on, your pleadings, your written documents, here's what's gonna help us get through this morass and get to a clear end. That I think would be absolutely pivotal. And that's what's gonna help us get to meeting all of those ambitious timelines we have there. So it sounds like a small thing, but I really think having some kind of more direction for council. I know council are looking for direction because they want to address the points that are gonna matter. More direction about here's how we can manage this. And here's the next issue on our horizon. What if we try and deal with it this way? That, I think, would be a fantastic role for the case management conferences to play.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. That would be wonderful. And and usually questions like that don't arise until the very end of the hearing where counsel say, okay, why don't we have a day where you ask us the questions that are really burning in your mind? And it doesn't have to be a limiting thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, the arbitration doesn't say, like, only talk about these things. But Like you said. They could say like, we're particularly curious about this. Funny thing, if a tribunal says we're particularly curious about X, counsel's going to write about X.
2: That's exactly it. Yeah. And otherwise you feel you have to touch every single argument because maybe that will be the page turner. But if you have the tribunal saying, here are the things that we're really getting down to. And we all know at the end of the day, there's maybe, you know, five issues that are going to be determinative. And we started maybe with 50 issues, having a better way to identify and focus on those, I think makes a huge difference.
1: Yeah. And and I also think that's one of the best things about the new rules is the whole efficiency and, and trying to gain more efficiency and speed in all the proceedings. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I guess one tiny question that, that someone who shall remain nameless at my law firm asked me to ask you, (laughs) which is, why didn't you create stronger incentives for tribunals to get their awards out faster?
2: Yeah, because basically, well, first of all, in terms of actually setting the timelines, we informally canvassed a lot of counsel and a lot of arbitrators and said, what's a reasonable time? We want it to be doable, but challenging. We want it to be reasonable. And we ended up at that sort of eight month time period for an award. But the reason we didn't have stronger sort of punishment, if you didn't make that, is because a number of things. But number one is the last thing you want is to have spent however many years getting to the stage of award writing. The arbitrator, for some reason, misses that date. And then what, are you going to discontinue the case and start again? That's to nobody's interest. So that didn't make sense because your goal is to get. To the final result. So that didn't make sense. I know that there were people who were keen on docking portions of the arbitrator's fees. And we have seen that in the ICC. I've also seen that there end up being a lot of sort of ways around it. I don't know if it's been as efficient as was hoped at the end of the day. And frankly, I think that these are complicated cases. And I see arbitrators putting in the work. And they deserve to be paid for the work that they do. So we thought with our rule that what really mattered was that you have something that focuses more on getting there in the time that you want, as opposed to penalizing people for not getting there. And that because these things are complicated, because it has happened more than once that as arbitrators drill down into their decision writing, something seems more important than they thought during the hearing. You do need to have a little bit of room for flexibility. So it was that sense that got us to the time and cost type provisions and the ability for arbitrators to extend the time, but they had to do it consciously. So it couldn't just be, it kind of got to the bottom of my desk. It had to be consciously and it had to give a finite date of when the product would be out. So we thought that was a good way to address this and we'll see how it works in practice, but I do feel that it is a good way to address it. Well, switching gears again,
1: Meg, on the T, we like to discuss diversity and inclusion. And we all know we need to do more in the arbitration space to increase diversity and inclusion across the board, from constituting panels to ensuring that more women and people from different origins and backgrounds serve as counsel and experts. Can you tell us a little bit about the efforts you have made at ICSID to promote diversity and inclusion and what you think has worked well? and where you think that more work needs to be done.
2: Absolutely. We've done a lot of things, and I think cumulatively they have worked well. In particular, they have worked well and have had really concrete results in terms of gender. And I would even say in terms of getting the new flyers, the first cases, getting the new generation into this, if I can put it that way. I think it's worked well with respect to region but that's an area that I still think of sort of the the categories you often think of still needs the most attention and is something we are constantly working on. So when we started really focusing on diversity and focusing on what the numbers were which not so long ago were pretty disappointing I can say you know 2009 and you had maybe 10% female maximum and it was probably two females who were full-time very well-known arbitrators, and that's not long ago. So when we started really focusing on this, we started to try to think of ways to accomplish it, and we came up with a number of things, but one that's been the most interesting to me was we came up with the idea of what we call a ballot, and a ballot is where the parties say, Ixid, will you please appoint, usually the presiding? And we say, if you would like, we will put together a list of five to seven people, and you vote on which ones you would be happy with as your presiding arbitrator. You don't share it with the other party. But if you both agree on a certain candidate, then you've got basically an agreed-upon candidate, which is always preferable than having a candidate named because you couldn't get to it. So it it at least preserves some of the goodwill from having an agreed-upon candidate. But what it did, which I had never expected, which has been a really interesting phenomenon, is it would give us, first of all, the freedom to put together a list, let's say, of three people you know very well and who are frequent arbitrators, two people who would be great arbitrators who happen to be female, one who would be a great arbitrator but comes from a region that uh, is not usually represented in this, and one brand newcomer that we think might be good and put the name out there. And so it gave you a lot more ability to have a broader group of people that you propose to the parties. And what was really interesting, especially in the early days when we did this, is that there would be a number of times where parties would come back with what you might think was the candidate that you might've expected more from the from the beginning, the candidate who was more well-known to the community, et cetera. But what was unique was two, three, four months later, you would see that law firm putting forward one of the less well-known candidates as their wing arbitrator. And I had never expected that, but it happened so many times. And what it said to me was, there's a lot to be said for almost putting new names into the environment, and they come back at a certain point, and that's a different way of building this diversity, but it's been incredibly effective. So I can can think at least now of about 10 or 15 people who are frequently appointed by parties, and they started in that way, being put on a ballot, not selected on a ballot, sometimes not selected 10 times on a ballot, but then put forward by council as a wing arbitrator. And I think that was a phenomenon that I did not expect it, but has been quite powerful. So that's been very useful. We also made a lot of efforts with our member states to advise them that the ICSID list of arbitrators and conciliators needed to be updated, needed to be kept up to date, needed people who had the qualifications necessary that this really mattered. And to the extent possible that they, when they were selecting people, should think about diversity and bringing in a different group of people. And we have again seen a number of our countries come back with some really fantastic candidates. And in many ways, when you think about it, They know who is in their jurisdiction and who they have dealt with, and often have ideas about candidates that we might not necessarily have. So that's been a really useful thing, and that's worked really, really well. We have also, in terms of diversity, tried to sort of showcase the diversity we have the ICSID review, um, our ICSID staff. We have 71 staff from 34 different countries. So there's just this sort of whole aura, not just at ICSID but also at the World Bank where diversity makes sense. And so it's something that we've been able to to fully embrace. So I think it's really having an impact and no doubt there's progress to be made, but I think we've come a long, long way. Absolutely.
0: And I can say that I have been one of the people just kind of watching all of the changes that has happened during your tenure, Meg, and so happy (laughs) to see the the progress, despite the fact that, yeah, there's there's a lot to be still to be
2: done. Are there term limits for appointed arbitrators? Yeah, the the arbitrators are nominated by countries on the ICSA list of arbitrators and conciliators have a six-year term. But unless their country takes them off the list at the end of the six years, they can still be appointed. And there are some countries who've just left people on for eight, 10 years or whatever. Yeah. But technically, it's a six-year term limit.
0: But the folks you're putting on the ballot are not coming from the roster necessarily. No. That's how you're getting the new people. Okay. That's
2: exactly it. Right.
0: And before I get to the very last question of our episode, I had to ask, because it's definitely on everybody's mind, and certainly, you know, hearing you today talk about all of the impressive things that you've done, the question is... What's next for Meg Kinnear?
2: That's a really good question. And I don't know myself. It's something I think about. Obviously, I am in my third term right now. So it's something I will be thinking about in the near future. And it's to find something where I can still be doing a job where I feel like I can make a difference and I feel like I can do positive things. And so I don't know exactly what it is. So that is one of the things I do think about. But I've still got till June 2024, before I have to make big decisions. But I know that I love this milieu. I think that investor state is an amazing technique. And so I very much still want to be involved in this milieu in some way or other.
0: Thank you for allowing me that question. And unfortunately, our time with Meg is not endless. So we have to close with our last question that we like to ask all of our guests, and that is, other than what we've been discussing thus far,
2: what has been keeping you awake at night these days? I am a multi-level, multi-topic worrier every night, So, <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, one of the things that i re- obviously looking first, what did I do today that got me ready for tomorrow? But more than that, one of the things I do a lot when I go to sleep at night is, have I put the things in place that are going to make the changes we need? next week, next month, next year. And it was funny when I was thinking about this podcast, it probably is not a surprise, but I don't know if you remember and if you read these books as a kid, there were a series of books called Cheaper by the Dozen. And it was about a husband and wife and they were among the first systems experts in the world and happened to have 12 children. So they used their systems expertise with their family and it was you know classic 1950s type reading. But I love those books. And when I think about it, I think that's sort of permeated because what I worry about is or what I think about is, have we got the systems for the next things that are happening? Have we put things into gear so that they're going to, you know, come to fruition in the next little bit? So that's kind of what I go to sleep worrying about. Mm. And that's probably the secret to your success
1: as a secretary general and why you've made it all work for all these years. Uh, With that, thank you to our guest, the one and only Meg Kinnear, and thank you to the DC Bar. To check out more of what DC Bar Communities has to offer, please visit dcbar.org backslash communities. And you have been listening to The Tea on International Arbitration. Watch out for new episodes. And if you like this episode, please tell a friend about it and subscribe at anchor.fm slash T or anywhere where you access your podcast.